From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. At the Undisciplined Science Show, we introduce you to a natural scientist working in a subject like chemistry. Then we welcome a social scientist from a field like history. And then we put them into a room and force them to talk about life. Today's meetup, the ecologist and the economist. That's Undisciplined, after the news. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the show, we're talking about frogs and birds, social media and violence, and why easy answers are never easy. Joining us today in studio are Karen Beard, whose most recent study showed a fascinating association between non-native species in Hawaii, and Veronica Pozo, whose recent work shows a frightening connection between social media and police violence. First up, The Ecologist. That is the sound of the infamous Puerto Rican Koki frog, which was accidentally introduced to Hawaii in the 1980s and has more than made itself at home, raising concerns about the impact these astoundingly loud amphibians might have on the native birds in the Aloha State. That's what Karen Beard and her team set out to study in Hawaii, but what they found is not what they expected. Karen Beard, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. So there are a lot of non-native species in Hawaii. The state's crawling with these creatures that did not come from the islands, but Kokis have somehow become public enemy number one. And one of the chief concerns has been that they were going to compete and maybe push out some native animals, especially birds. That's what your team went to Hawaii to study, but that's not what you found. Right. Yeah. So Hawaii is now, especially in the lowlands, mostly dominated by non-native species. And um, Hawaii is an interesting place. It's this archipelago that's super isolated and probably one of the most isolated island groups in the world. And there's no native frogs there. And this frog from Puerto Rico came in nursery plants and it's extremely abundant right? 90,000 frogs per hectare. So that's a lot of frogs. It's a lot of frogs. Um, You're walking through the forest and you can see definitely about, you know, 10 sometimes at any given time. So there's been a lot of concerns about the invasion. And um, so there's these ecological concerns, as you mentioned, and there's also these social concerns. Maybe I can I can get into a little bit. But um, from an ecological perspective, coquis eat insects, and so do a lot of the native birds. And so there was a concern that they might reduce or eliminate um, some rare and endemic insects, but also that they would just lower insect numbers and compete with native birds. And so we went to look at this. And and we found that the native birds, at least the ones that overlap with the koki frogs, don't seem to be affected by them. And it's actually the non-native birds that are affected, and they're increasing in measurable ways where the kokis have invaded. They're, okay, so I know I know it's complex, right? But <laughs> why are they increasing if, if there's competition for the food? What's going on? Yeah, so it turns out that there's some non-native birds, like the common mina, that can eat kokis. So they've actually found a new novel resource, and their populations are measurably going up. Can you talk a little bit about how you go about doing a study like this? Because I think Hawaii can be a pretty rugged place. It's not always easy to see little animals. How, how do you count birds and frogs? So we do our work on the big island, which is the island that the Koki has become extremely widespread. And I should mention that they've successfully eradicated them off of Kauai and Oahu. So they're trying to keep some of the islands Koki free. But the big island is the newest island. And so it's 
it's very volcanic and the terrain is pretty intense. And the frogs actually like that, which is one of the reasons that their populations are so high there. They go into the um, volcanic rock, they lay their eggs in there. This is like great structural habitat for them. And so they can all find their territories and they can be in really high numbers. So we go out to these sites, but at night, that's when the frogs come out, right? And so at night, we go out to these sites and we walk transects and we count the number of frogs that we see. And we record their distance from us and we use some math models and we figure out how many frogs are there. And the birds are done similarly. We measure them in the morning because that's when they're mostly out. We, you know, we listen to birds and we look for birds and we determine how far they are from us and we use math models to figure out how many are there and what kind are there. So even though we haven't necessarily seen a big impact on the native birds yet, there was, as you say, this rise in the non-native bird populations. And you probably can't have a lot more non-native birds without eventually having an impact on some aspect of the native population. What are the concerns moving forward? As you kind of mentioned early on, Hawaii has become dominated by non-native. So seeing a lot more non-native birds could have effects on non-native mammals in Hawaii. And so one thing we're looking at now is the number of rats and mongoose in these same areas. And so these are non-natives. That were ac- well, the rat was accidentally introduced and the mongoose was introduced on purpose, but they are non-native. They are bird predators. So they eat eggs of birds. And so if non-native birds are increasing, that could increase rat and mongoose populations. And that might then influence native birds. Um, So that's kind of something we're looking at right now. And it does seem like mongoose populations are also increasing in these places where frogs are increasing. So so it could be that there's like overflowing kind of impacts on native birds. But at this point, we haven't measured that. So there's been renewed debate in recent years, or maybe new debate, I should say, in recent years about how to view non-native species, even down to the words we use, like alien and invasive. How would you like your research to inform that evolving conversation? Yeah, so um, there's there's different ways to view non-native species, for sure. Um, And historically, we did kind of take this like almost like warlike context, like these are aliens or these are um, exotics that we have to wipe out. Um, And and so there were these words that had kind of subjectivity involved in them. And scientists have kind of tried to move away from that a little bit and just call them non-native as a descriptive term to describe that they're just not from that area historically. Because there are non-native species that can be positive. And of course, you know, if you look at our agriculture or all kinds of things, we introduce non-natives all the time that that are, are, are beneficial to humans. And so, you know, when we use the term invasive, though, then we're implying that there's negative impacts to humans or to the ecology of the area. And so Cokies have been called invasive potentially because of their negative effects in terms of the ecology, but also mostly because of their negative effects for humans. Because these things are really loud. Yeah, they're really, really loud. And the main reason that they've gotten so much attention is that they invaded this silent forest in Hawaii where there were no native calling animals of any kind, really. I guess there was a native cricket. But other than that, it's a pretty silent forest. And a lot of people moved to Hawaii to appreciate that. And then this really loud frog invaded, and it's, you know, 90,000 frogs per hectare. It's extremely abundant. It's really, really loud. Um, its call is above usually the statute for noise pollution for towns. So all of a sudden, outside of people's windows, there's this really loud 
calling frog that's keeping people awake um, and that they can't stop. And so, yeah, it's the social context really that caused people to originally pay attention to them. Um, and, and then there was this idea that there might be ecological consequences too. It's interesting because there's other non-native frogs that invaded around the same time as the coqui that aren't noisy that never got the press really that the coqui did. And, and it's mostly because they tell you where they are and people know they're there. <laughs> That's Karen Beard, who studied with Robin Smith and David Coons on koki frogs and non-native birds in Hawaii, was published in November in a journal called The Condor, Ornithological Applications. Karen, will you stick around with us until the end of our show to talk about something that has everything and nothing at all to do with frogs? Of course. Our next guest is an economist whose previous publications have included examinations of meat, poultry, produce, and grain prices, but her latest work diverges from agriculture quite a bit. In it, she and her colleagues examine the ways in which social media impacts the prevalence of violence between police and citizens. Veronica Pozo, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you. Your previous papers have had names like forecasting organic wheat prices and is local produce really more expensive? So this latest paper, which is called Primed for Death, seems like a pretty big departure for you. What is the story behind your interest in this subject? Well, part of my research actually is, or one of the areas of my research is applied econometrics. So that means that I got to do a lot of work that is not pretty related to the my main focus area, which in this case would be agricultural marketing and price analysis. And this is very interesting how I ended up working in this project is because this this these are a group of friends, acquaintances that got together into a room and with us we were talking about sometimes we talk about research. And they know they these these are our colleagues from the criminal justice department. So they know that I have some statistical skills that might help them to solve some problems. So what happened is that when they consulted with me about, you know, possible solutions for a particular problem from a statistical standpoint, I was more than happy to provide some insight. And then they say, no, you have to get into this project. You have to help us. And that's what happened. Since I, or this, the, the, the methods that I use for my research apply very well to this type of research. So I say, why not? It is a very interesting project. You brought the math. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yes. Well, okay, let's talk about how that math was applied. Over the course of nearly two years, in 2015 and 2016, you and your co-authors looked at the frequency of police killings in the line of duty and police deadly use of force against whites and against minorities. And what you found was, well, it was stunning and it was sad. It, a retaliatory, violent relationship between law enforcement and citizens in which a rise in the number of officers shot in the line of duty is associated with a significant increase in the number of minorities killed by police officers in the same day. That's that's a tremendously important finding, but I've got to assume it's not one you would have ever hoped to have found. In reality, when you enter into this type of topics, you try to do the best you can in terms of covering every aspect of the statistical analysis. So it's going to be something that is robust and because we knew about the implications so we, we really hope we didn't hope to find we were neutral in, in, in what we were wanted to find 
But then when we realized that, you know, what our resource were saying, then we thought, okay, so we have to set back and try to understand what's going on. Because one part is the math, what the, the, the statistic analysis is telling you, and the different part is trying to understand, okay, why? why? What's behind everything? How can we explain what, what is going on? And so then we had to move. You see, we started with criminal justice. Then we move. I, I bring the stats. And then we had to move to psychology to try to understand why our, our findings are, are saying what they're saying. And, and to that end, you found that an increase in the use of hashtags on Twitter, um, the ones you studied were related to the, the Black Lives Matter That's movement. Correct. But an increase in those hashtags is correlated with a rise in the killings of law enforcement officers and the killings of minorities, minorities by officers. So as you took that step back and you started to examine this, what did you come up with as the likely, likely explanations? We mainly focus on a terror theory. So this is a theory that explains that because people, when you know they are surrounded by all this news, especially media news, their sil- um, and it's a particular term that they use is mortality silence, which is basically they are aware that their death is inevitable and they become more anxious about it. So they, they, they tend to target or to be more uh, aware of what's going on. And, you know, that creates some kind of the people is afraid and they try to target people in their out group. So in this case, if an, an officer feels that he's threatened, when he sees a person that is from an out group, they would tend to use more retaliatory or more violence against that person versus when that person sees a white individual. Somebody from the in-group. From Somebody from the in-group, that's correct. Does this make you want to go back to wheat prices? <laughs> or, <laughs> or are you energized to move forward with additional research in, in this arena? Oh, no, totally. Uh, right now we're thinking about, because we were looking this from a perspective of minorities, so we didn't actually segregate it by racial groups. And that's one of our next uh, steps, to try to, you know, divide groups by races and see what happens if the results are, you know, just corresponding to a particular race or if we have different views or different levels of violence to different groups. But at least so far, what the data is telling you is that there is a there is a measurable fear response, and that response is very likely even subconscious. Yeah, it might be yes, and that's that's the the part of the terror management theory that says that it can be conscious or unconscious. Do you worry about how your data and your findings will be used? Or are you already seeing people talk about it, moving the public conversation either in productive or maybe even not so productive ways? Well, one of the things that we try to um, make our audience aware of is that this is a purely, diff- it, it uses different methods to look for these answers that we need more reinforced from, from the uh, from academics in terms of testing these using experimental methods that use actually, you know, people on it. So we see these mostly as opening the doors to something and and leading to future research that can complement our work and then can be used in in a lot of uh, policy-related implications. So so right now we we, we try to be careful with how we transmit our message 
this is what we're finding. This is the possible explanations that we can give, but they are not necessarily the ultimate reasoning for what is going on. That's Veronica Pozo, who study with Vladimir Behan, Matthew Hickman, and William Parkin on violence between law enforcement officers and citizens and social media contagion was published in PLOS One. Veronica, are you ready for a chat about something maybe a little bit lighter? Sure. <laughs> So now then for an introduction, uh, Veronica, I'd like to introduce you to ecologist Karen Beard. Nice to meet you. And Karen, I'm really happy to introduce you to economist Veronica Poza. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so so here's the thing. The, the question I'm about to ask you isn't about ecology and it isn't about economics, but I suspect that both of your areas of expertise will come into play when you consider the subject. Okay. So, all right. Okay, so <laughs> here's my question. As humans we tend to look for simple answers. And I'd proffer that we might even be hardwired to look for simple answers. But the more we look at things, the more we see that life in all of its different forms is really complex. So I'm wondering, how do you as scientists fight against the human urge to look for A causes B sorts of relationships? And do you ever find yourself in other aspects of your life falling into the trap of blaming simple things for complex problems? That's easy, right? <laughs> okay. Um, I think I can tackle the first part of that a little bit. Um, my research program in Hawaii, um, there were three hypotheses kind of set out originally about what are the like clear, very simple relationships between this frog and what's going to happen there. And... Um, the results of all of our studies, we've kind of done three studies to look at those three hypotheses, have all not shown those clear-cut kind of answers. And um, and they've shown that there's just a lot more <laughs> kind of going on, and it's a mo lot more complex than um, our, you know, our original hypotheses might have suggested. And ecology is kind of like that. It's a messy field. There's always hundreds of species out there interacting with each other. And um, a lot of times the relationships aren't like a super strong interaction that then leads to another super strong interaction. A lot of times it is more complicated and um, dilute. So um, I think that might have addressed the first comment about, you know, just how do you deal with that? And then how do you explain that? Um, I think that's hard because people do want a simple answer. Um, and... It, a lot of times our research doesn't necessarily show a simple answer. That's true. <laughs> well, in, in my case, um, we, we looked at everything from, um, you know, we tried to make it as simple as possible in terms of collecting data and in terms of how we can frame the whole analysis. But then when you are, you know, getting shocking results, that are very difficult to explain. Then is when, like I mentioned before, you, in, in our case, you don't just rely on one particular type of science. You rely on different things. You grab things from criminal justice, you, include, you introduce statistics, then you go to psychology. So those are the complexities of the research, and, and, and you have to be flexible. And I think that flexible here is a very... Um, important word because you cannot just rely on on the, your limited 
knowledge, but you have to expand it and look for answers and look for people and talk to people and say, okay, this is what we're doing. This is what we found. Now, what do you think? And then frame it in such a way that um, all the all types of audiences can understand it. And what, part of the ways that we do that is that we try to have one technical, very technical paper, then we have something we we are in the conversation, for example. So we have another very non-technical summary of what we found. And that's how we try to target different audiences and explain this in an easier manner. I I don't know. I guess that at some point, what it seems complex is not as complex when you sleep over it. <laughs> Here's, let, me, let me see if I can phrase this in a different way. You aren't just scientists. You have families, you have friends, you have uh, people uh, that you run into at work who you like and people who you run into at work who you don't like. And I'm wondering if it's uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes the way you look at things as scientists impacts the way you look at things you know, in your non-scientific part of your life, in the part of your life that says like, oh, I got to deal with this problem. I guess that your brain at some point is so it's trained to, to analyze things from a scientific perspective in terms of, okay, what is the problem that I have at hand? And then what, what other people has done to, to solve it? And then what can I do? And then what is the best method that I can use? I guess that that translates some, a little bit into our lives. And I see myself doing that at several times when you know, I have to solve something. So you go back and you grab this training that you have from being a scientist and apply it to that to your daily life. Do you do the same, Karen? Do you? Yeah, I think I do. I mean, I, all of these years <laughs> being a scientist, you definitely, it's there is probably some training that's gone on where you kind of approach other things outside of your field in the same way. And in, at least when it comes to my research, I always try to think of like, you know, what are the simplest possible explanations or the simplest path is the first way that I start. And of course, you know, as we've been talking about today, a lot of times that simple relationship isn't what's there and it's much more complicated than that. But um, but I think in, in life I try to say, okay, what you know, what are the simple relationships? And then and then at least approach it from that point of view and then see how complex it gets, I guess. <laughs> do, do you ever A-B test your life? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> do you ever, like, like, do you ever set up your life as like, well, I'll, I'll try this for a little while and if that doesn't work, then I'll try this for a little while and then like I'll, I'll compare results? I think that it's more of, um, okay, let's see if this approach works. And until this point, if it doesn't, we move to the next one. Or let's see where this is going to lead me to. And then, you know, if this happens, I will take this approach. If it doesn't happen, I will take this other approach. I see more on, you know, that probably is the simplest way that I can see it. Obviously, it's more complicated because you, we are humans, right? You know, all the, it's like a spider web. We can go any, any, <laughs> any type of direction. But at the end, I think that including logic into decision making, probably that's, that's the best way to go. Do you take lessons out of your research that um, you apply to life? For instance, one of the things that you found in your research is that it is very likely that these split-second, very important decisions that police officers made are impacted by things that they have 
experienced earlier in the day. Things as, as simple as, as uh, tweets and social media reports. Do you try to apply that to your life and think about like, well, maybe I shouldn't, uh, maybe I should take a step back and take two breaths before I make this big decision? Yes, of course. It, it impacts a lot how I see life. But I think it impacts more from a more ideological point of view in terms of we're seeing here how how a message from one person can impact, you know, can have a domino effect and impact other people. And as a whole, in a group, they can have even more impact on the whole society. So you see, everything started, in my case, everything started with the shooting of one person. And this big movement was created. The implications of how these people can affect the perceptions of other people that's what is very interesting about the research. And so that makes me think, okay, what is, how is that going to affect my life? Well, I have to be very, very careful about the messages that I receive and how I filter them so I can control how that, that, that my perceptions are going to be shaped by those messages. So as I was kind of talking about my frog, the main impact that it's had has been on people, right? The main reason that there's been millions of dollars spent to control it in Hawaii um, is that people kind of early on in the invasion decided that they didn't want this really loud call in, in their environment and they didn't want this frog there if they could control it. And we've done some sociology-type studies over there, which I didn't talk about earlier, but there is there is a fear component to the frog as well. It influences the behavior that people have and whether or not they control for the frog on their own property. So we found some interesting things, and I think it kind of relates a little bit to what you were talking about. The take-home message from that research has shown that the less people know about the frog and the less experience that they've individually had with them, the more afraid they are of the invasion. And so they're more willing to actually do things to control the frog on their property or prevent an invasion on their property if they have little experience with them. And so I think that's it's kind of interesting because it's it's this like fear response. And then once people get to know the frog, there's this like psychological shift that kind of happens where they've accepted that it's in their life and they're not as afraid of it. So I don't know. I think maybe there's an interesting connection there. Actually, one of the recommendations of our paper is to train police officers in terms of getting together with the community and get to interact with minorities so they know each other better, they know their cultures better, and then that fear that you're talking about being you know, reduced because of those interactions. I mean, in my case, it means that if they have less fear of the frog, they're just going to accept this non-native frog into their environment, which maybe isn't the consequence we want. But it's still kind of, I think, interesting about just the familiarity that people have can really influence how they act, their behaviors. Sadly, because we're almost out of time, I've got to break in and break this up. Veronica Pozo, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Oh, no, thank you for having me. And Karen Beard, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. The Undisciplined Science Show is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Things by Benjamin Tissot. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.